This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 11 Who Rears the Bloody Hand? Sayers Emily remained in her chamber on the following morning without receiving any notice from Montoni or seeing a human being except the armed men who sometimes passed on the terrace below. Having tasted no food since the dinner of the preceding day, extreme faintness made her feel the necessity of quitting the asylum of her apartment to obtain refreshment, and she was also very anxious to procure liberty for Annette. Willing, however, to deter venturing forth as long as possible, and considering whether she should apply to Montoni or to the compassion of some other person, her excessive anxiety concerning her aunt at length overcame her abhorrence of his presence, and she determined to go to him and to entreat that he would suffer her to see Madame Montoni. Meanwhile, it was too certain from the absence of Annette that some accident had befallen Ludovico, and that she was still in confinement. Emily therefore resolved also to visit the chamber where she had spoken to her on the preceding night, and if the poor girl was yet there, to inform Montoni of her situation. It was near noon before she ventured from her apartment, and went first to the south gallery, whither she passed without meeting a single person or hearing a sound, except, now and then, the echo of a distant footstep. It was unnecessary to call Annette, whose lamentations were audible upon the first approach to the gallery, and who, bewailing her own and Ludovico's fate, told Emily that she should certainly be starved to death if she was not let out immediately. Emily replied that she was going to beg her release of Montoni, but the terrors of hunger now yielded to those of the Signor, and when Emily left her she was loudly entreating that her place of refuge might be concealed from him. As Emily drew near the great hall, the sounds she heard and the people she met in the passages renewed her alarm. The latter, however, were peaceable, and did not interrupt her, though they looked earnestly at her as she passed and sometimes spoke. On crossing the hall towards the cedar room where Montoni usually sat, she perceived on the pavement fragments of swords, some tattered garments stained with blood, and almost expected to have seen among them a dead body but from such a spectacle she was at present spared. As she approached the room the sound of several voices issued from within, and a dread of appearing before many strangers as well as of irritating Montoni by such an intrusion made her pause and falter from her purpose. She looked up through the long arcades of the hall in search of a servant who might bear a message, but no one appeared and the urgency of what she had to request made her still linger near the door. The voices within were not in contention, though she distinguished those of several of the guests of the preceding day, but still her resolution failed whenever she would have tapped at the door, and she had determined to walk in the hall till some person should appear who might call Montoni from the room, when, as she turned from the door, it was suddenly opened by himself. Emily trembled and was confused when he almost started with surprise, and all the terrors of his countenance unfolded themselves. She forgot all she would have said, and neither inquired for her aunt or entreated for Annette, but stood silent and embarrassed. 
After closing the door, he reproved her for a meanness of which she had not been guilty, and sternly questioned her what she had overheard, an accusation which revived her recollection so far that she assured him she had not come thither with an intention to listen to his conversation, but to entreat his compassion for her aunt and for Annette. Montoni seemed to doubt this assertion, for he regarded her with a scrutinizing look, and the doubt evidently arose from no trifling interest. Emily then further explained herself, and concluded with entreating him to inform her where her aunt was placed, and to permit that she might visit her. But he looked upon her only with a malignant smile, which instantly confirmed her worst fears for her aunt, and at that moment she had not the courage to renew her entreaties. For Annette, said he, if you go to Carlo, he will release the girl. The foolish fellow who shut her up died yesterday. Emily shuddered. But my aunt, signor, said she, oh, tell me of my aunt. She is taken care of, replied Mantoni hastily. I have no time to answer idle questions. He would have passed on, but Emily, in a voice of agony that could not be wholly resisted, conjured him to tell her where Madame Mantoni was. While he paused, and she anxiously watched his countenance, a trumpet sounded, and in the next moment she heard the heavy gates of the portal open, and then the clattering of horses' hoofs in the court, with the confusion of many voices. She stood for a moment hesitating whether she should follow Montoni, who, at the sound of the trumpet, had passed through the hall, and turned her eyes whence it came. She saw through the door that opened beyond a long perspective of arches into the courts, a party of horsemen, whom she judged, as well as a distance and her embarrassment would allow, to be the same she had seen depart a few days before. But she stayed not to scrutinize, for, when the trumpet sounded again, the chevaliers rushed out of the cedar room, and men came running into the hall from every quarter of the castle. Emily once more hurried for shelter to her own apartment. Thither she was still pursued by images of horror. She reconsidered Montoni's manners and words when he had spoken of his wife, and they served only to confirm her most terrible suspicions. Tears refused any longer to relieve her distress, and she sat for a considerable time absorbed in thought when a knocking at the chamber door aroused her, on opening which she found old Carlo. "'Dear young lady,' said he, "'I have been so flurried. I never once thought of you till just now.' I have brought you some fruit and wine, and I am sure you must stand in need of them by this time. Thank you, Carlo, said Emily. This is very good of you. Did the signor remind you of me? No, signora, replied Carlo. His excellenza has business enough on his hands. Emily then renewed her inquiries concerning Madame Montoni, but Carlo had been employed at the other end of the castle during the time that she was removed, and he had heard nothing since concerning her. While he spoke, Emily looked steadily at him, for she scarcely knew whether he was really ignorant or concealed his knowledge of the truth from a fear of offending his master. To several questions concerning the contentions of yesterday he gave very limited answers, but told that the disputes were now amicably settled, and that the signor believed himself to have been mistaken in his suspicions of his guests. "'The fighting was about that, signora,' said Carlo." but I trust I shall never see such another day in this castle, though strange things are about to be done. On her inquiring his meaning, Ah, signora, added he, 
It is not for me to betray secrets, or tell all I think, but time will tell. She then desired him to release Annette, and having described the chamber in which the poor girl was confined, he promised to obey her immediately, and was departing when she remembered to ask, Who were the persons just arrived? Her late conjecture was right. It was Verazzi with his party. Her spirits were somewhat soothed by this short conversation with Carlo, for in her present circumstances it afforded some comfort to hear the accents of compassion and to meet the look of sympathy. An hour passed before Annette appeared, who then came weeping and sobbing. "'Oh, Ludovico, Ludovico!' cried she. "'My poor Annette,' said Emily, and made her sit down. "'Who could have foreseen this, mademoiselle? "'Oh, miserable, wretched day, that ever I should live to see it!' And she continued to moan and lament till Emily thought it was necessary to check her excess of grief. "'We are continually losing dear friends by death,' said she, with a sigh that came from her heart. "'We must submit to the will of heaven. Our tears, alas, cannot recall the dead.' Annette took the handkerchief from her face. "'You will meet Ludovico in a better world, I hope,' added Emily. "'Yes, yes, mademoiselle,' sobbed Annette. "'But I hope I shall meet him again in this, though he is so wounded.' "'Wounded?' exclaimed Emily. "'Does he live?' "'Yes, ma'am.' But, but he has a terrible wound, and could not come to let me out. They thought him dead at first, and he has not been rightly himself till within this hour. Well, Annette, I rejoice to hear he lives. Lives? Holy saints! Why, he will not die, surely. Emily said she hoped not, but this expression of hope Annette thought implied fear, and her own increased in proportion as Emily endeavored to encourage her. To inquiries concerning Madame Montoni, she could give no satisfactory answers. "'I quite forgot to ask among the servants, mademoiselle,' said she, "'for I could think of nobody but poor Ludovico.' Annette's grief was now somewhat assaged, and Emily sent her to make inquiries concerning her lady, of whom, however, she could obtain no intelligence, some of the people she spoke with being really ignorant of her fate, and others having probably received orders to conceal it. The day passed with Emily in continued grief and anxiety for her aunt, but she was unmolested by any notice from Montoni, and now that Annette was liberated she obtained food without exposing herself to danger or impertinence. Two following days passed in the same manner, unmarked by any occurrence, during which she obtained no information of Madame Montoni. On the evening of the second, having dismissed Annette and retired to bed, her mind became haunted by the most dismal images, such as her long anxiety concerning her aunt suggested, and unable to forget herself for a moment, or to vanquish the phantoms that tormented her, she rose from her bed and went to one of the casements of her chamber to breathe a freer air. All without was silent and dark, unless that could be called light, which was only the faint glimmer of the stars showing imperfectly the outline of the mountains. The western towers of the castle and the ramparts below where a solitary sentinel was pacing. What an image of repose did this scene present! The fierce and terrible passions, too, which so often agitated the inhabitants of this edifice, seemed now hushed in sleep. Those mysterious workings that roused the elements of man's nature into tempest were calm. Emily's heart was not so, but her sufferings, though deep, 
partook of the gentle character of her mind. Hers was a silent anguish, weeping yet enduring, not the wild energy of passion inflaming imagination, bearing down the barriers of reason and living in a world of its own. The air refreshed her, and she continued at the casement, looking on the shadowy scene over which the planets burned with a clear light amid the deep blue ether as they silently moved in their destined course. She remembered how often she had gazed on them with her dear father, how often he had pointed out their way in the heavens and explained their laws, and these reflections led to others which in an almost equal degree awakened her grief and astonishment. They brought a retrospect of all the strange and mournful events which had occurred since she lived in peace with her parents. And to Emily, who had been so tenderly educated, so tenderly loved, who once knew only goodness and happiness, to her the late events and her present situation, in a foreign land, in a remote castle, surrounded by vice and violence, seemed more like the visions of a distempered imagination than the circumstances of truth. She wept to think of what her parents would have suffered could they have foreseen the events of her future life. While she raised her streaming eyes to heaven, she observed the same planet which she had seen in Languedoc on the night preceding her father's death rise above the eastern towers of the castle, while she remembered the conversation which has passed concerning the probable state of departed souls, remembered also the solemn music she had heard and to which the tenderness of her spirits had, in spite of her reason, given a superstitious meaning. At these recollections she wept again, and continued musing, when suddenly the notes of sweet music passed on the air. A superstitious dread stole over her. She stood listening, for some moments in trembling expectation, and then endeavored to recollect her thoughts, and to reason herself into composure, but human reason cannot establish her laws on subjects lost in the obscurity of imagination any more than the eye can ascertain the form of objects that only glimmer through the dimness of night. Her surprise on hearing such soothing and delicious sounds was at least justifiable, for it was long, very long, since she had listened to anything like melody. The fierce trumpet and the shrill fife were the only instruments she had heard since her arrival at Udolpho. When her mind was somewhat more composed, she tried to ascertain from what quarter the sounds proceeded, and thought they came from below, but whether from a room of the castle or from the terrace she could not with certainty judge. Fear and surprise now yielded to the enchantment of a strain that floated on the silent night with the most soft and melancholy sweetness. Suddenly it seemed removed to a distance, trembled faintly, and then entirely ceased. She continued to listen, sunk in that pleasing repose which soft music leaves on the mind, but it came no more. Upon this strange circumstance her thoughts were long engaged, for strange it certainly was to hear music at midnight, when every inhabitant of the castle had long since retired to rest, and in a place where nothing like harmony had been heard before probably for many years. Long suffering had made her spirits peculiarly sensible to terror, and liable to be affected by the illusions of superstition, 
It now seemed to her as if her dead father had spoken to her in that strain, to inspire her with comfort and confidence on the subject which had then occupied her mind. Yet reason told her that this was a wild conjecture, and she was inclined to dismiss it, but, with the inconsistency so natural when imagination guides the thoughts, she then wavered towards a belief as wild. She remembered the singular event connected with the castle, which had given it into the possession of its present owner, and when she considered the mysterious manner in which its late possessor had disappeared, and that she had never since been heard of, her mind was impressed with a high degree of solemn awe, so that, though there appeared no clue to connect that event with the late music, she was inclined fancifully to think they had some relation to each other. At this conjecture a sudden chillness ran through her frame. She looked fearfully upon the duskiness of her chamber, and the dead silence that prevailed there heightened to her fancy its gloomy aspect. At length she left the casement, but her steps faltered as she approached the bed, and she stopped and looked round. The single lamp that burned in her spacious chamber was expiring. For a moment she shrunk from the darkness beyond. Then, ashamed of the weakness which, however, she could not wholly conquer, went forward to the bed, where her mind did not soon know the soothings of sleep. She still mused on the late occurrence, and looked with anxiety to the next night, when at the same hour she determined to watch whether the music returned. If those sounds were human, said she, I shall probably hear them again. End of chapter 11